0: Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkonde What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues.
1: This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkonde Reya. It's business, but it's personal. In
0: color. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musician shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is serial entrepreneur Paul Mancou, founder of Unified in discovery business along with others, as well as being that an investor in early stage tech companies. A self-professed academic underachiever, it wasn't until university that Paul managed to combine his fascination for technology and marketing on a groundbreaking new course, Business and Information Technology, that's what they used to call it where he was given, apparently, a coarse laptop back before most people even had a PC at home. The digital revolution was quietly on its way, and Paul has since set up no less than five tech-enabled businesses from scratch, scaling them from startup to multiple exits, with the legal sector his most long-standing focus. He founded Unified in 2010, providing e-discovery and document review services to Fortune 1000 corporations, law firms, including Mishkondore, and government agencies across Europe. It's great to have you here. Hi, Elliot. Thanks. Nice to be here. Paul, in your world, the non-consumer world, the business-to-business world, you have done a whole ton of stuff. And people listening and go, I wonder who this fellow is. Tell me about the first business you set up. I just want to go there for a moment and then we'll jump around a little bit. Well, arguably the first business I set up was
2: selling sweets and drinks to my friends on their BMXs. That was probably the best business I ever had because 100% profit margin. My mum bought all the stock and I sold it and kept the money. <laughs> but uh, in reality, the, the first business I set up was way back. I was working for Xerox in their outsourcing division. And uh, a few of us colleagues sort of looked at what was going on there. Xerox was a hotbed of technology, innovation, you know, great kind of delivery of services outside of the photocopy that they're kind of known for photocopier division. And we kind of recognized that actually a lot of our clients weren't really well served by this kind of great monolithic corporate structure. And so ventured out on our own. And uh, that was my first experience into the legal world. So as a company we set up in the 90s, a small company called IGL, which we built up and, and kind of after a few years sold to a company called Icon, which is like a mini Xerox. And then that became sort of a center of what they called legal document services back in those days. So it was working on big cases like BA versus Virgin, BCCI versus BO, Bank of America, where you, know, you had so much information in those days proliferating in document form, in paper, that to get anything done, you, you had to get control of that. And there was no way of manually going through that kind of stuff. You know, it's just impossible, physically impossible to do within the confines of the court case or whatever it was, the litigation. So at one point we had, you know, a hanger given to us at Heathrow and we set it up with, you know, 100 people with a scanner and a PC and they were literally scanning the paper in, running character recognition on it and creating searchable databases. So that was the first business we had and set me on the course to entrepreneurship, but also, you know, the legal world.
0: And when you did that, what did you know about running a business? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. I mean,
2: I think, as I said to you, joking aside, I think from early... Days I always found as a youngster a sort of natural bent towards entrepreneurship, business, if you want. I was attracted to it. You know, obviously, you and I of a certain vintage. We grew up in the in the era of '80s films, and you know, greed is good, and Gordon Gecko, and the stock market, the Big Bang, and all of that kind of stuff. And that was the bit that I was kind of drawn to was the business side of things. So you know, I, I worked on. Camden Lock Market, selling jewelry on a stall, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and really was always towards that direction of building brands and, and selling things. Right? Yeah. So, so that was that. But in terms of actually corporate structure, how do you set up a business? What do you do? How do you manage people? How do you employ people? You know, how do you go and market yourself? How do you create a brand? All of that kind of stuff. I had very little experience of that. I remember, like, as a kid, I was obsessed with brands. So like I used to chop out cut out the brands out of the the sweets that I was eating and stick them on a piece of paper and I had these sheets of paper just with the brands and I just used to look at them. And then I came up with my own uh, logo. I used to design my own brands. And then um, I was very proud. This, this was the era, obviously, of Japanese technology, another thing which I was really interested in. And so I created my own brand and, and spent hours doing it and, and it was called Fise F-I-S-A-E. You know, I'd, I'd looked at all Hitachis and all of these kind of other brands and Sony... And, uh, and come up with this name. And then my dad, who's a doctor, pointed out that it's, it's pretty similar to faeces, and <laughs> it probably wouldn't go down very well. So uh, at that point, I abandoned my uh, electronics career.
0: You've just reminded me, and we'll go to Eddie Harris on the next piece in a moment, but um, I wasn't as original as you. My my interest was in EMI. EMI, the record right. label, because it was Elliot Moss invention, So <laughs> I Very good. <laughs> pathetic, but that's what I thought, that's what I'm going to create. I'm like, they've got it, but I'm going to be that guy. School I know from you was not your your highlight. University, probably not your highlight in terms of, acad- you know, you feeling like you're not an academic performer. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Maybe you're being hard on yourself. But do you think your relationship with academia has propelled you into proving yourself in the world of business?
2: Definitely. I think, you know, that and also probably allied with a bit of a cultural kind of background and being, you know, son of a of an immigrant into the country... Um, and Dad, kind of. Dad Indian. Correct. Yeah. My dad's Indian, was born in Nairobi in Kenya, became a doctor, went to medical school in India, and then emigrated to, to the UK. But growing up with that kind of environment where, you know, I was told Look, you, you have to achieve twice as much as the next person in order for you to be recognized and to, to be able to do it. Did you um, hear that message very yeah, early on? Yeah, very early on, repeatedly. My dad's great at repeating things, um, <laughs> but uh, he drummed that into us from, from very early on. Look, you know, you know, you're, even though my mum's English, right, and, and was born in Bournemouth, uh, slightly less exotic, <laughs> um, but but you know, the the idea that that you had to go and achieve something. Now, I didn't apply that, and and you know, don't get me wrong, I had a, a very good education, etc., good schools. But it just didn't grab my, my goat, you know, the, the academic side. I had a great time. I really benefited from the social kind of interactions and, and really focused on that, you know, the relationships, which I think actually was really useful for me in later life and in business. But certainly, you know, the drive to prove both things, you know, that I didn't have to necessarily be the top academic achiever to achieve something worthwhile. I think, you know, dad is Indian. And, and probably no surprise to anyone that he wanted me to be a professional, right? Doctor, dentist, lawyer, accountant. That was basically, again, right, drummed too, into us. Ridiculous. He yeah. <laughs> failed miserably. Exactly. Um, so those things, you know, were really, you know, were really useful in spurring me to sort of say... I remember, actually, the course that I, I ended up doing at university, business information technology. I remember going to Dad and saying, listen, I'm going to go and do this. You know, up, up to that point, I think it was despairing because I took a year out. was kind of pretty aimless in that year. And... Um, he, I said, you know, he said, computers, do you think there's a future in that? Or, you know, I mean, like, absurd now, right, when you look back on it. But for him, it was kind of this this idea that if you weren't a professional, you know, yeah. you'd struggle.
0: Uh, and the technology thing and the and the relationship with it, you know, again, you mentioned with a similar vintage, very similar. I was less interested in technology than you. I could see it coming, but it didn't. I didn't want to go learn about it. You went, and if it wasn't academic, you went and practically went into the world of, of software and, and you were looking at kind of inferred learning and all these all these things in the early 90s. Why? What, what drew you to that?
2: Yeah, so I think, well, two things. I think I was very lucky. I was really lucky that Manchester met Metropolitan University, the old poly. Um, had put together a really groundbreaking course, you know, early on, that was focused on that kind of vocational side of not just developing, building programmers, but really building rounded individuals that could look at business, look at technology and put the two together. So, I mean, I know a lot of founders and kind of, you know, established people later on in life and successful business people kind of like to credit themselves as being self-made. But I think without being hackneyed about it, you know, I think there's, contributory factors all the way through that cycle, right? And and I think, you know, luck is a, is a big one of them, you know, and being in the right place at the right time and having those other influences, you know, someone who had the foresight to put together that course and, and have people come on it who weren't necessarily a, straight A grade students, etc. So, you know, I think that. And then, of course, I think everyone's interests are different, right, in, in terms of what they take from the environment around them. And, you know, I happened to be very interested in technology early. I wasn't really ever a great programmer. I mean, you know, walking into Dixon's and write 10 print pool, 20 go to 10, and having the screen filled with uh, <laughs> with lots of pools was probably about about my limit. But, you know, I did learn about those things like expert systems, inference engines, relational databases
0: in 1990. I was going to say, right? way, way before people even knew what they might have meant. Stay with me for much more from my guest is Paul Manku, um, and he's a serial entrepreneur. He likes technology, and he likes business too. He'll be back in a couple of minutes. Right now, we're going to hear a clip from the Mishkon Academy digital sessions, which can be found on all major podcast platforms. The Mishcon Direct Group's MDRX, Tom Grogan, talks about Web 3.0, the next iteration of the internet, and what businesses and individuals need to be thinking about when formulating their Web 3 strategies and pursuing valuable, impactful
1: projects. Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today.
2: Web 1 is very much the beginnings of the internet. It's the internet of, of reading. The internet used to basically just be a mass catalogue of websites that you could go on and read stuff. Web 2, very much the era of the internet that has seen the explosion of the likes of the social media giants and e-commerce, is the internet of reading and creating so whether or not that is creating your social media profile or interacting with posts with with
0: likes or if anyone remembers pokes on facebook all of these more interactive experiences that have sort of characterized the web 2 of today web 3 is the
2: next step of that where we hope that we'll be able to transact value directly so it will become the the internet
1: of of read create and own the mishcon academy digital sessions To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal.
0: You can hear all our former Business Shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast, and you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. My guest today is serial entrepreneur Paul Mancou, founder and CEO of, amongst other companies, Unified, an e-discovery business, and he's an investor in early-stage technology. I want to talk about Unified for a moment, because that um, is where, from a business point of view, I, I met you. We met you outside of it, and we're, we, yep. we are friends as well. Um, it's good to say that I like friends. Friends are important. Um Unified, though, tell me about that, because that was the first big one, as far as I can see, looking outside in, for you. Did you think it was going to be as big as it got when you set this thing up? No, in a word. I mean, looking back on it, it was a lot
2: of serendipity around it in terms of timing, both good and bad. We set it up at the height of post-2008 crash,
0: just give me the one line so people that don't know what e-discovery is. Just give me your... What sure. did you used to say when you were coming into law firms and other big companies? What were you selling? So, so I want it, to hear the salesman. Here, absolutely. here comes the pitch.
2: <laughs> here comes the pitch. So e-discovery quite simply is using technology to handle large volumes of information and data associated with legal cases. You're still nutshell. good at it. That was good. <laughs> so uh, I have still got it. Um, <laughs> so the, you know, the, the, the idea is really being able to enable lawyers to do other stuff other than looking through reams and reams of documents or, you know, gigabytes of data. And really for their clients to be able to pay for, you know, the stuff they care about, which is, you know, what's going on in in the lawyer's head and, and connecting the legal dots rather than for hours and hours of quite mundane
0: and low value work. And that business now, where is it today? Because I know it's gone through a number of hands, hasn't it? So it now that business now
2: has ended up as part of a much bigger discovery and legal technology business called Consilio, which is a global business. But as you say, went through many iterations. We, we sold it originally in 2015, and it became part of, it was bought actually by a company called Clear Lake Capital, They're the guys who backed the Chelsea yeah. bid are now in Chelsea. And Eventually, through a few iterations, Inventus, Lagility ended up as part of Concilio. And, and that was a public company at one point? So, yeah, it ended up, uh, when it was uh, Inventus, it was acquired by a company that was listed on NASDAQ. And so we ended up going from, you know, two of us screwing desks together in an office in <laughs> Old Street to, uh, you know, sitting in an office in San Francisco overlooking the Bay and doing investor calls you know, post the results every quarter. Did,
0: did you I mean at that point, is it a pinch me moment, or is it just because there's so much background in history, you just are where you are? I'm just wondering how much of a what the
2: Yeah, I think I, look, I think there were pinch me moments, definitely, but I think a mixture of never really sort of a oh, wow, isn't it amazing what I've achieved kind of pinch me moments. I think more sort of how am I going to get through this <laughs> in three moments, right? Or actually, I can't even think about it because I just need to get on with this, you know? And, and you know, I, I, there were some interesting times as part of a Nasdaq listed company. There was a bit of a boardroom kind of tussle and the CEO of the Nasdaq listed company left and then the the head of, uh, of of our part of it was moved aside and left. And then they said, hey, can you run this globally? And, and you know, again, you know, I mean, my answer was yes. Um, and then... Oh, God, how am I going to do that, right? So I think, you know, there, there were those moments where, to your point earlier, you know, what was your experience? Well, none. You know, had I ever run a global company? No. But did I have the confidence that focusing on the, the key things that were making that business successful,
0: did I understand that? Yeah. And the rest of it, I, I'd figure out. You've talked about lots of successes, Paul, and and it's that, you know, and every time I ask you... What did you know? I you, absolutely nothing. Did it bother you? No, because I had a confidence, so this inner confidence that I could work it out. Where's that inner confidence from? Do you think? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I think because it's not arrogance. It's definitely not arrogance. It's just a yeah. All right, I'll do it then. But you've never. A lot of people push for the next position. They push, push, push. You're not that person. You're the guy that dossed around in his year out. Yeah, you know that isn't yeah. you. And yet,
2: yeah. I, and it's a really good question. I don't know. And and you know, my wife Nolene of, often says to me. You, you just seem to just kind of be calm about it and, and kind of do it. You know, you don't, you don't seem to get nervous about stuff. And I said, that's not true. I think, you know, everyone gets nervous. It's just a question of how do you channel that, those nerves, right? And do they become overwhelming or do you just channel them into, to, you know, doing what you need to do? In terms of where the confidence comes from, I think a lot of it comes from, I think a lot of it comes from my dad and my mum. I think my family and this, coming back to sort of educationally being an underachiever from an academic perspective. But, you know, I went to good schools that instill you with confidence. And I think that's, you know, one of an important aspect of schools that is often overlooked. It's not just about what grades you get, but it's about, you know, do you come out of them with a can-do attitude in the real world? Mm. I know a lot of people who are immensely confident throughout their academic career Um, especially in legal right and and they follow the 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 traditional path and they go to top unis and get top scores and then they end up in a top law firm and then they get into their mid-40s and they just have a crisis right and they're just like actually I haven't achieved what I wanted to achieve and actually I've just followed this path blindly and now I have zero confidence as to what I want to do in life and I think you know it's a very different kind of confidence and I remember in my one of my first roles and this is back in Xerox's outsourcing division. Back in those days, Xerox had great training and they used to make you, before you could even go out and sell something, they used to make you pitch for your job, even though you had the job. They said, look, you've got the job, but until you pass this, what they called a review board, you're not allowed to get out on the streets and represent Xerox. So you had to go in there and pitch to six people from the senior management team. And it was a very nerve-wracking thing, right? I mean, it's your future career, et cetera. You're very early on in it. But I remember actually that my boss at the time said to me, you know, you've, you've got something and she called it street. You've got something street about you, Paul. And, you know, I never really kind of knew what it meant at the time. But I think what she meant was that both from an interpersonal perspective in terms of dealing with people, selling things to them, you know, finding out about their business problems, but also in terms of being able to sort of navigate commercially what needed to be done. You know that was something I just I just had. So I think my confidence came from the early success in those areas as well. But I am definitely someone who seeks or builds my my foundation on understanding. So you know I have to understand something. I'm not a I'm seat of the pants maybe in in some aspects of what I do. But really I have to fundamentally one believe in what I'm doing. Two have a a kind of north star as it were in terms of what I'm trying to achieve. And three, I need to understand you know, the fundamentals of whatever it is I'm, I'm,
0: I'm attempting to do. There you go. It's not just seat of the pants after all. <laughs> Stay with me for my final chat with Paul. And uh, we've also got some Banda Black Rio for you as well. That's in just a moment. Don't go
1: anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. I've
0: just got a few more minutes with Paul Manku here on Jazz Shapers. You talk a lot about The successes and the the skills—then people call them soft skills—they're not; they're just people skills, human skills. You've built great teams, Paul, and you know your relationship with those humans as you've gone along the way is—they're deep, they're meaningful, they're almost familial uh, because of the nature of the the startup journey. What do you look for now when you invest in people? is it one of them or are you open enough to go doesn't have to be the way Paul Manku does it i'm just interested because now you're in this quite privileged position where you can say i will invest and i will help you but you've obviously got to see something in that
2: yeah look i definitely definitely doesn't have to be paul manku you know 2.0 i mean i think the, the there's a lot of things i'm not good at and and you know actually my my co-founder when i when i founded unified was much better at the people skills than i was yeah, people, people, people obviously is the, is the kind of mantra when you're looking at early stage tech companies. I look for something other than just persistence. And, and you know, I, I call it resilience, right? In the sense of my idea of what resilience is, is the internalization. It's persistence, but internalized, right? So, you know, you can be an early stage founder and you can keep knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door with the same message but I think, you know, the real skill is internalizing what you're hearing and the feedback and the market and, and, and taking all of those inputs, internalizing it and adapting, but being resilient about it. Having lots of no's, having setbacks, and you talked about successes. I've had failures as well in, in business as well, and I think that's a really important um, point. You know, anyone who hasn't had a failure in business, I think, is less successful, um, especially in the startup community. But I think, you know, having, having people who have that ability for that resilience, but also people who are understanding that they are not the key determinant in the success of that enterprise. They are a factor in it. So someone who is willing to acknowledge
0: and treat fairly the people around them Mm. um, to go on that journey with them. Which I know you've also done as you've built these businesses, you've been very clear about giving people equity, about ensuring that they're also going to benefit from them, which is obviously another characteristic i guess of a, of a founder that you look at how they treat their team in a, in a financial way
2: yeah and it's and it's very interesting I mean, absolutely i think you know we were very clear from the outset um, in in all of the businesses but particularly in unified that whilst i had a 50/50 co-founder you know we ensured that the people that are on that journey you know participated in the in the long term benefits and the equity of of those businesses one of the interesting factors i think now with more experience under my belt of seeing different startups, and also seeing the US versus the UK, for example, there are very different approaches to the crystallization of reward. So uh, from a US perspective, for example, you know, there's much more of a sort of CEO is king kind of culture. And really, you know, you, the CEO decides what they want to make, and then everyone else kind of flows from there. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think that's, that's a very different approach than I've
0: seen from, from a UK, Europe and, and, and elsewhere. Really quickly, because I want to get your song choice, but there's a thing I've got in my head about your relationship with money. And it's not something we've ever spoken about. You've obviously been successful in monetary terms and you're now in a position, as we said, to invest and you're also sort of semi, semi-retired. You know, you can think about what your, yeah. nec- your next thing is. What is that relationship like? And where does it go from here?
2: Yeah, I, look again, you know, coming back to kind of my early life, you know, my father, as well as wanting me to be a professional... You know, really instilled in me that money gives you choices. You know, and and not a love of money for for money's sake, but just for what it would do for you. And I think you know, without going too deep about it, that probably comes from him not having that really. You know, he was the he was a doctor, but he was you know my grandfather's a mechanic, ran a garage in in central Nairobi. Mm. You know, um, and then when he came down here, kind of you know, worked worked as a mechanic in Chiswick in in the Ford garage there. Um, but I think you know he had to pay his own way through medical school, etc., and went to Bombay and, and all of this kind of stuff. So I think, you know, that idea of money giving you choices and meaning you don't have to worry about money was really important to him. My relationship with money, I think, absolutely same thing. You know, I, I like it for what it enables me to do, I like what it enables me to do for my family, for my lifestyle, etc. But, you know, I'm not obsessed with being, you know, kind of the richest or, or you know... You know th- there have been times along the way that, you know, I probably could have made a lot more money, but I made choices not to push for it, to your point earlier. And, and it wasn't about necessarily not wanting it. It was just that I just felt that, you know, I was happy with what I had, right? Uh, and, and I think, you know, we talked about sort of, you know, the personal aspect of this, of business. And, you know, for me, I think, you know, that's more important than necessarily the money. I think the journey and the people
0: along the way and, and what they add to you and your life been great talking to you Paul thank you i've heard a lot of stuff that i didn't know about paul manku and i'm sure you have too it's been brilliant just before i let you disappear what's your song choice and why have you chosen it
2: i chose uh, sly on the family stone family affair probably obvious from from the things i've said here but you know for me family's been ever so important in my life also the family the business family as it were the people along the way So, um, you know, from that perspective, also happens to be one of my favourite, one of my sister's favourite songs. She, my older sister, who sadly passed away last year, uh, very early age. So, yeah, it's it's a great song as well.
0: Sly and the Family Stone with Family Affair, the song choice of my business shaper today, Paul Manku. He talked about the importance of belief, the importance about understanding issues so you can resolve them and the importance of having a North Star. He talked about someone describing him as having something street about him and it's that personableness, that ability to just rub along nicely, which is deceptively powerful for him. And really nice phrase about what resilience really is. Resilience is persistence but internalised, that ability to take on feedback, to take on the nose and to adapt and to flourish. Really good stuff. That's it from Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend.
1: Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business.